Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Did you know you can find further resources on thepowerofbirth.net via the printable resources tab that includes things like a hospital bag checklist, postpartum toolbox, pelvic health information, and so much more. Don't forget while you're there to subscribe to thepowerofbirth.net for your free printable motherhood affirmations. I hope you love them as much as I do. The phrase, all that matters is a healthy baby, may seem reassuring and well-intentioned, but it can actually have damaging consequences for mothers and their families. While the health of the baby is undeniably important, this sentiment often dismisses the emotional, physical, and psychological well-being of mothers during the birthing process and postpartum period. It creates a cultural pressure for mothers to suppress their own experiences and struggles, making them feel invisible and unimportant. This focus on the baby alone can lead to the neglect of mother's physical and mental health and the support that they need, potentially exacerbating birth trauma and postpartum difficulties. It's crucial to acknowledge that both the health of the baby and the health and well-being of the mother are interconnected and both deserve equal attention and care for a truly holistic and healthy family dynamic. So today we have the extraordinary guest with us, Dr. Erin Bao. She's not only a mother herself, but also a clinical and perinatal psychologist with a PhD in self-harm, suicide, and borderline personality disorder. After experiencing traumatic births of her own two babies, Dr. Bao redirected her profession to focus on birth trauma and its profound consequences. She teaches birth trauma training for birth workers in over 40 countries and is the author of multiple books, including More Than a Healthy Baby, Finding Strength and Growth After Birth Trauma. If you keep listening, you'll find out how you can get your copy. Dr. Bao is a business mentor, host of Mamas You Are podcast, and has been featured in reputable publications such as Sydney Morning Herald and Kidspot. Today, she's here to share her expertise on birth trauma, and we chat about post-traumatic growth. Erin, thank you so much for joining me today. I actually wanted to thank you first for writing such a brilliant book. I found it quite inspiring and I loved how it really simplified concepts of trauma in a very nurturing way. And I also loved how raw and real you were throughout your whole book. You seem like actually a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I'll tell my children you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I just picked up like a lot more, a lot of things I didn't maybe recognize or know initially um and I'm that's coming from someone who's kind of at the other end of traumatic experiences and um, processing trauma and things like that so that was really interesting but one thing that I actually really loved throughout your whole book was that you kind of fostered hope throughout Mm -hmm. and I really found that that's necessary after you've experienced um traumatic events and things but also particularly with like birth trauma and perinatal trauma because I've felt that hopelessness before. So that was just something that I really loved. And yeah, I think it's a really great book. Now behind every great woman and great book, um, there is a story that's inspired 
than to write it. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey and sort of, yeah, what got you here and what got you writing that book? Yeah, well, I mean, you can blame the kids, right? <laughs> I wouldn't have, <laughs> love them. Uh, I wouldn't have written this book if it wasn't for them, but you're right about the, you know, it's the funny thing about birth trauma. It's like sometimes out of that, you also get something that you really want, right? And have dreamed for your whole life, which is why it's like such a mind meld of a thing. So that book came out of having my second traumatic birth. So having already gone through one and done what I thought, and I mean, I still think much more preparation, much more research, like hired some extra people in my team, changed, like did all the things, like all the things I thought I could possibly do to create this positive restorative healing birth and then it happened again right for a bunch of different factors and different reasons which we can go into if you want or not um so yeah this was after my second daughter was born and I think it was a mixture of things so one is I just found I had to write like even when she was like probably not even two weeks old and I was sitting like right 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 I've just got to get all this stuff out of me which I know other people find therapeutic when you're ready for it it can be really helpful and so I had content, right? But there were also gaps, right? Like I trained as a clinical psychologist. I'd already worked in perinatal before and I was looking for things for myself. And I'm like, well, there's not much here. I mean, this is five years ago, but there really wasn't much there. Um, and I knew that there were things that I did that seemed to help. And so I think I sort of thought, well, if I've done a few of these things and they seem to have helped, plus I've got that professional background maybe there's a way to kind of blend this together so that if someone else is in this position one day like three o'clock in the morning going what on earth just what was that that they can actually find something find something that's going to make them feel like a there's something I can do to help and b like it is going to get better Mm. so going to your births then reading and hearing your story and the way you kind of articulate it throughout your book, it sounds like in your first birth, like the birth was actually okay with you. It was yeah. more so what was happening postpartum. And you had a hemorrhage, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah, big one. Yeah, a really severe hemorrhage, a couple, like about six hours after birth. And you were kind of, can you kind of walk us through what, that experience was like if that's okay yeah so I mean I guess this is the other thing like for people listening you stay in your body right I've had a lot a lot a lot of goes talking about this so sometimes when it seems like oh that sort of just rolls off the cut tongue and like good for her um this is a practice effect yeah right it's like you put your stage thing on and off you go (laughs) so I just I I always want people to be mindful of Mm. that so that I don't seem like I'm flippant about anything or offhand about anything there's a lot of work behind this so yeah Stella's birth she I I suppose a short track um I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes despite the fact that I never tested those blood sugars never elevated Mm. after the first test that's a whole other but because of that there were and I was a first-time mum there were lots of like rules I suppose as other people encounter um you know she hadn't arrived by a certain time there was a lot of pressure to induce 
I went along with it because I just got to a point where I thought, well, ooh, you know, like the dead baby card's been thrown up a few times, so I'll, I'll go with that. I was, I was comfortable with that. It's one of those things with induction that sometimes you're like, yeah, looking back, I don't know, but water could have shoulda. The birth itself was pretty intense, of course. Like it was fast. So she was like 90 minutes wow. start to finish from the second that drip was like hooked up, bam, it was showtime. Um, and as it turned out, like all kind of blissed up and stuff immediately afterwards, although I suppose whether I was blissed up or just in shock, <laughs> I'm still not really sure. But um, she, what happened? So she had trouble feeding. She wasn't the slightest bit interested in feeding. And again, because of gestational diabetes, so like, oh, no, no, blood sugar, you've got to feed her. So there was a little, even that early on, it was a bit like, oh, have this baby shoved on you. It's painful. I'm not really in the mood. She's not really in the mood. But there was that urgency. So I think with a lot of her birth, there was just that sense of urgency, like hurry up, quick, we've got to like get this done, which I'm sure heaps of people relate mm. to, right? And then in the immediate kind of, I don't even know what the timeline was. I probably did write it down or somebody told me that it's a thing with trauma. Time is like, who knows? I just started feeling pain, like unbelievable sensation, I suppose, sort of felt like down in my lower back. And I'd mentioned it, but because, you know, I sort of otherwise seemed okay, it ticked along and ticked along and ticked along and, oh, you know, maybe you've bruised this, maybe you've damaged that, you'll kind of, you know, you seem all right. Um, and then in between that, just like starting to hemorrhage and hemorrhage and hemorrhage. And then I had to go in for emergency surgery and that was like, oh, okay, you get wheeled off, off you go, kind of down that, <laughs> people know, you get wheeled off out to the place and you're like, see ya, bye, don't really know if I'm coming back. And there was that moment. So I know other people have had that moment too. We have that, it's called peritraumatic death imprint where you think, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. I don't actually know if I'm going to come out of this alive. Mm. So there was that. And it turned out in the, like, force of which she'd come out, she came out um, fist first, like I call it, like superwoman style, like Superman, and she just managed to, like, tear the internals all the way down on her way out. Um, but that wasn't discovered until later because there was no obvious signs that there was any damage so it was kind of that thing that women go through where it's like you know we talk about sensation we talk about pain it's such a subjective experience but then when you've got someone saying yeah but there's no it doesn't you know like it doesn't look like anything so you know you're probably fine um but this was me you know I didn't have any other drugs or anything else at the time so I'm like oh, no I think my pain threshold's pretty good like not to you know put tickets on myself or take away from anybody else but it's like yeah so that was that experience and it is tricky because the birth itself was good and I was I just trained as a hypnobirthing practitioner at the time and there may have been I suppose in hindsight some pressure to put a spin on that not a spin on it but just to like I questioned. I'm like, is it really as bad as what I think it is? Because the birth itself was positive. Mm. Yeah. But as you say, in the immediate aftermath, it was more like, oh, it wasn't necessarily the birth itself. But yeah, that cascade of stuff that happened afterwards. Yeah. And then your second baby, like you were saying before, like you did all the things, you felt really prepared this time. Um, but again, some complications and some unexpected outcomes aka a very big baby 
um, yeah. shoulder dystocia, yeah. I believe. Yeah. yeah. And so how was that experience for you? Had you dealt with your previous trauma before going into this birth? Do you know, I think I had. Yeah. I think I had settled into the idea that, you know, and I talk about this all the time for anyone who's thinking like that they might do this again, staying in that sort of different day, different baby, different outcome, like I don't know if I ever got to like this is going to be completely different, it's going to be so positive, this is never going to happen again, like that sort of thinking maybe is helpful, wasn't helpful for me, but I knew it would be different and I knew I was more prepared. So I think I had, but it was just, again, one of those ah, woulda, coulda, shoulda kind of, you know, I was told she was going to be a big baby, but, you know, in speaking to plenty of other women who've had that before, sometimes measurements can be so off. <laughs> I tell this to people before, it's like I wrote an article for some publication like probably even a year before my first daughter was born about, you know, the kind of myths about having a big baby. Never in a million years thought I would have one myself. Big babies don't run in my family. Like I'm five four. My mother's like not even five foot. Like having a five kilo baby, even though people kept telling me like, oh, you know, she's measuring big and I was physically, like I look back at pictures of my belly now and go, like who, like who even is that? <laughs> it's amazing. But at the same time, I don't think there was, I didn't let any sort of fear come into my brain about the possibilities there. So I felt like I was prepared. I felt like, you know, it'll just go the way that it goes. And then, you know, kind of, I guess, as showtime came, she just got stuck. Mm. Yeah. And that was there. How are you feeling in, in the aftermath of all of that? A mixture of things. So I think because with Stella the first time, I was so distraught, like so just so distraught. Like you add in all the things about, you know, I wasn't able to eat. So like you go into the, I went into the hospital like what, five, six in the morning or something. Not allowed to eat anything. Again, that word allowed, not allowed to eat anything because you're being induced, you know, and had surgery by the time I came out from surgery and then eventually went back to the ward. It was probably really late at night. I still have these like, you know, memories of my husband like sheepishly eating my food. <laughs> munching on my cheeseburger and I wasn't allowed to have any of it so it's like you're physically drained mentally you're drained can't even eat anything and it was just like this was so I just didn't want a pity party mm. like I was so determined to be different this time so there were certain sort of things I thought all right I'll try this differently um and it's not the like this is the remedy for anything don't hear this and go oh if you do this you won't have birth trauma but there were certain things that I did that helped. One is like smelling. Like there's lots of research about if you just huff down on a baby, it will settle down the stress hormones and the cortisol. So I did that. And I knew that like just lots of skin to skin and like kissing your baby and all of that. Like not everybody feels like that the first time. Probably the first time I would have been like, this may as well be an elephant in the room. <laughs> I do not feel bonded to this child particularly at all. But I think I just talked myself into it the second time. I was like, I want to remember not just the horrific what is all of this, but the, okay, there's going to be hope. It's going to get better. So there were certain things that I did that kind of, I think, made the second experience different. Mm. Um, you could say better. I don't know if it was better or if it was just different. Yeah, I understand that. You also had hyperemesis in both of your pregnancies. 
Yes, so lots and lots and lots of vomiting and um, pregnancy deafness as well, which turns out is a thing. Yes, you're the first person I've come across with that, but that is, personally, I find that fascinating. Like, what the heck? But Mm. how stressful. (laughs) Yeah, especially when you're a psychologist and, um, like, you need, I need my ears and I ideally need to be able to sit in a seat for about 50 minutes to an hour and not have to like throw up so um yeah it made work I mean almost impossible towards the end but uh thankfully it didn't stick around as long as it does for some people it was mostly just oh gosh I don't even know I wasn't vomiting up until birth for some people it's like up until actual birth but it was yeah it was still 20 odd times a day yeah wow I mean I've had HG in both my pregnancies so I yeah. totally get what you're talking about but yeah that's a whole yeah. new thing but yeah the deafness that's wild wild mm. so in your book you break down trauma as little t trauma and big t trauma and i just want to kind of highlight the importance of differentiating the two but then also there's this element of trauma that obviously is subjective and mm. So, you know, someone could go through what's deemed as, say, a traumatic event and come out the other end okay, but then someone else can go through it and come out the other end traumatised. So, like, what is it about trauma that makes it subjective as well? Mm. Well, do you want to go for the little T, big T first? Yeah. So, I don't know. It's a, a distinction that I found helpful because, um, I mean, as you know, in training in psych, the language around it is like subclinical. And I was like, I don't want to be referring to my women as like sub anything because it, I don't know, it just sounds a bit too, don't know, doesn't fit for me. So I think the small T trauma, big T trauma kind of makes more sense. So little T trauma, as it's sometimes called, um, is just that. It's some symptoms of PTSD, but you don't actually get to the full, this is taking over your life kind of thing. So it might mean that you walk away from birth and are finding yourself fixated on it. There might be some flashbacks. There might be some like just going over it and over it and over it. That's a common thing we, you know, families talk about, um, which is part of the brain's natural processing, trying to work out what's happened anyway. But then after a while, I don't really even like putting a time frame on it. We'll say six weeks because that's kind of just the standard thing in perinatal, right? After about six weeks, things are kind of starting to, you're finding a flow. And it's like, it might not be that it's completely behind you or you don't feel anything about it anymore, but you're able to get on with your day and you're able to kind of do all those things that are part and parcel of having a new baby. When it's more PTSD, so the big T trauma, there's no amount of like, talking to someone about it, I mean your friends and family, or researching or reading books or trying to breathe more or be more grateful. That's another thing I hear, like Mm -hmm. trauma and gratefulness do not reside in the same place. Um, It's just unrelenting, like perpetual state of panic and you just cannot get off that train of what happened no matter what you do. That's kind of the very simplistic definition, but it might be the one that's, helpful without going too much into the light where you have to have this symptom and you have to have this symptom and we have to check this off. Um, I don't do a lot of that in terms of actually sitting down and going, well, that's symptom spot. Um, That comes more later in terms of like, well, what treatment are we actually going to focus on? That helps me there. 
But for me, it's like if someone says, oh, their birth was traumatic, I'm like, cool, it was traumatic. Like, that's, that's good enough for me. I don't need, like, checklists and symptom things because you're right, it is it is in the eye of the beholder and it's subjective and what sounds traumatic to one person won't sound traumatic to someone else, which is why um, sometimes women hanging out in groups together and talking about their birth stories can be healing and positive and supportive. Sometimes they can be completely naturally invalidating and people walk away feeling worse. Mm It's it's really interesting because I find a lot of the time, particularly online, this debate about types of trauma, you know, this little T trauma, this big T trauma, is like up for discussion a lot of the time and mm. tried to be separated a lot of the time. I see maybe from like an intervention perspective how that would be really helpful because what helps PTSD may not help that little T trauma and vice versa. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah I, like I see the value in doing that in certain contexts, but yeah, on I find online a lot of the time it's the little T trauma is invalidated and maybe mm. doesn't count for a lot. It's sort of like if you don't meet a certain criteria, it doesn't really count, um, which I find really harmful. Yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, so I absolutely agree with you. So can you then talk to the subjectivity then of trauma? Because I also find that this comes up a lot too because I've had a lot of women say, well, you know, if it's about our perception, then it's almost like victim blaming in a way. Like it was something we should just think about it differently or we should have done something differently. Um, and oh. so that, that can be really troubling for some people. So what is it about subjectivity and perception in trauma? Mm. I think part of it is like the temptation with something complex, and I guess this is just trauma across the board, particularly online and particularly as people I think often come at things from a good place and want to be helpful, but like we don't actually know. We don't actually understand trauma as much as we want to Mm. or think we do. Um, You know, even some of the techniques that we use we don't have full deep understanding about why they work like the brain is complex and so there is this temptation particularly with this you know like generation that we're living in where people have got low attention span you need to get to your message quickly and sometimes in that there's a temptation to make things more simple than they are (laughs) so I think that's something I've seen a lot I'd say particularly in the last two to three years um you know, when you watch educational videos or you watch other people's content, it's like, we're just going to make this simple. I mean, the good example of that might be, you know, um, when people talk about like having excess dopamine and uh, a dopamine detox and they're like, that's making something super, super, super complicated, <laughs> way too simple. Yeah. Um, dopamine is a neurotransmitter. I won't go into all science with that. I'm not an expert in it either, but I see it as a good example of let's run with a half idea and make it simple because then you can make content out of it and it sort of seems digestible. But then you just end up getting frustrated because it doesn't add up and that's because it doesn't add up. So, yeah, the subjectivity has to be there because it's nobody else is in your brain, nobody else is in your body, nobody else has walked in your shoes. It's not really up for someone else to say how something should affect you or not because you've got years of walking around in your own body, in your own experience of the world. Yeah. And who knows what that's like? Yeah. Except for the person in it. And sometimes even the person in it can't describe it. So. And you're right. I agree yeah. with you. It is, it, it is so much more complex than maybe we played out to be. And 
you know, seeing someone as an individual in their own person, in their own world, with their own experiences, like all of that counts and all of that matters. And so, yeah, like it isn't about just the way we think of it, but perception is still an important part of this. But yeah, like you were saying, it is, it's so much more complex. (laughs) Yeah. And if we could talk about it and analyze it, then that, like, I think, is it Bessel van der Kolk? He says, like, if you could talk about it, this wouldn't be as complex as it is. Like, you've got five senses that we've been able to talk about in some level of clarity. There might be other ones mm-hmm. that you get triggered, I suppose is the right word. You smell something, you hear something, you see a certain colour, a certain tone of voice. I mean, like, the subconscious stuff is, like, it's very real and we don't exactly know why we react to the way we react to things it's like we come across people sometimes and we're like i don't know why but i just you're not my vibe Mm. you're not like there's something about you and it might be that if you sat down and thought about it it's like oh that person's got similar mannerisms or a similar name or they hold their head in a certain way that reminds you of that girl from high school who was horrible to you and the person in front of you is not the same person and logically, if you thought about it, you know it's not the same person, but something in your subconscious is going, no, which to someone else doesn't make sense. Mm. But if they sat down and thought about it, they would also have their own responding that is not able to be easily articulated. Mm. Like this is the frustration that so many people have. It's like if I could tell you why this is a problem, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Can we talk about a little bit about sort of, I guess, the mechanics or the mechanisms behind what happens to your mind and your body when you experience trauma? Like what's going, mm. what's going on internally? Yeah, I think the way that I understand it, which is one way of understanding it, it's not necessarily the be-all and end-all, mm. but the, the way that's been helpful for me to think about it is it's too much, too fast, too soon. So something has been identified somewhere as like this is a danger and you go into a good old fight or flight or freeze or form response, but it happens so fast that you don't even have a chance to think what's happening. And that's often the, the piece that I hear a lot when women say, oh, this was happening, this was happening, and then, like, it all just happened so fast and I don't know what happened after that, um, you know, whether that's been like a cascading of intervention or a button's been pushed or, you know, a, a tone has changed or something and all of a sudden it's just your sense of time is gone. Like I, th- I think that's the important thing about trauma. It's like people keep saying, well, logically, yeah, I know it happened in the past, but it feels like it's happening right now. And that's a huge part of it. It's like it's timeless. You're just suspended in time. That's maybe like a good way of thinking about it, um, that when something happens, you, you don't have time to think about it, process it, consider what you feel about it, what the sensations are. It's just way too fast. So that's kind of how I understand mm. it. That makes a lot of sense. And then because then, so, you know, it's, it's all happened really hard and fast and you're kind of having reminders or re-experiencing in the aftermath and this could lead for months and months for some people, years. And what is sort of the consequence on the body and brain if this is kind of going on long-term? Mm. What might be helpful, what I found helpful, is to think about it like a filing system, I suppose. Um, So whether you go for like an actual physical bits of paper in a filing cabinet, if you keep kind of shoving things in there 
and you don't sort them into categories, it is eventually going to like spill out, right? Mm -hmm. All at once, most likely when you don't want to be thinking about it, when it's really inconvenient, and then you're kind of going to have to do something about it. The other analogy I've used sometimes is like when you get those virus pop-ups on your computer and uh, people like my husband will say, well, you know, you, you can't just keep flicking them away. You've actually got to do something about that or your computer's going to shut down. So it's like little pop-ups and then the natural tendency is to want to like squash it, get rid of it, don't look at it. But we know from something called ironic process theory, the more that you say, don't think about the pink elephant, don't think about the pink elephant, do anything but think about the pink elephant, your brain will do the absolute opposite. So it sort of just stays suspended until you can make some sort of sense of it, put some sort of story to it, and then the waves get smaller is kind of the very simple way. <laughs> I suppose, again, we're talking about simple things, but that's part of the challenge. You want to make things seem simple and digestible, but not too simplistic, I guess. Mm -hmm. Can you, sorry, I'm just going out on a whim here. I, I just thought it might be helpful to break down the nervous system responses in regards to birth trauma. So the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. What do these, can you provide maybe some examples of what these look like in mm. differently? Because they are, they look different. Mm. In birth, again, it happens really, really fast. So your brain will quickly decide, like some people have a default, like their default will be, say like you look at your family and what happens when people get antagonistic with each other, there's often a default. You will usually have someone whose first default is to fight and then the other person is typically a fleer. Just, you know, that's a bit, I don't know how scientific that is. I'm not a relationships expert or um, that skilled in attachment theory, but that's kind of how I understand it. So some people have a default, but in birth, fighting is not really an option. You're going to very quickly work out that that's not an option. Fleeing, uh, people try. Like they try, they're like, oh, i got to go move my car, like in the middle of transition or something. We know that that's a thing. Um, it's also a very natural part of birth to want to like run away. I don't want to do this. Like <laughs> you know, I've got better things to do. I think I'm going to go see a movie, like all the stories that we hear. But usually that's not an option. Also, if you've been immobilised in any way, like your body will send signals like to fight and run away, but then you suppress them. Um, what we know from, I suppose, somatic experiencing and other kind of approaches like that is that it will stay in your body and those sensations don't go anywhere. They just keep coming up again. So... Typically, what a lot of people do in birth is they fawn or they freeze. So freezing is literally what it sounds like. You just go numb, cannot move. A lot of people talk about feeling cold. It's interesting because when you talk about different types of um, intervention in birth as well, there's parallels with that as, as well. Mm -hmm. We know that, um, you know, going through C-section and stuff like that, your body is naturally colder um, with epidurals. Sometimes you shake like so the parallels between what's happening as part of just, you know, birth and the procedures that happen there versus what is your internal system saying, oh, danger, danger, um, a lot to unpack. But, yeah, fawning and just, you know, being a good girl and shutting up and not making a fuss is a really typical one. And that's often the one that people struggle with when they talk later about like well why why didn't I stand up for myself why didn't I do this why didn't I say that or well, their partners will be like 
I just stood back and let this happen. And I would never do that, you know. Like if your partner was knocked down in the street, spoken to rudely, someone, you know, had a go at them or assaulted them, like you'd be there. You'd be there and you'd be protecting them. So sometimes it's not just for the birthing person, it's for the other people witnessing who have to suppress every urge that tells them to do something. But that is, we're culturally conditioned to find that normal. Yeah, absolutely. That power imbalance, Mm. it's like the lab coat um, research scenario all over again, isn't it? Over and over. Yeah, absolutely. So the premise of your book was, you know, more than a healthy baby. You know, we're often met with comments after struggle or discomfort or difficulty around our birth experiences, you know, that all that matters is a healthy baby. And that's kind of what's said throughout pregnancy as well and well into postpartum. I'm like, how do we just eradicate this completely from our maternity (laughs) system, our social circles, our culture? Like, what is the defense for this? Hmm. I don't know that there is like a perfect one that is also like falling into the, the I've had many shower fantasies about that as well. It's like, what is the perfect <laughs> comeback? What is the perfect thing to say that will just shut someone down? The only thing I've gotten close to is um, I talk about this article sometimes that I read a few years ago, which is called something along the lines of like, at least you've got a healthy husband. So it compares like the event of a wedding where, you know, it rains or you know, something goes wrong, your cake falls apart, your flowers aren't right, and how much more empathic and understanding people are. Nobody says, well, at least you've got a healthy husband, right? You're married, all that matters is that your husband's healthy. Like it's, it's just kind of always made me smile a bit tongue-in-cheek because I think it's so true. Like I think about uh, like it rained on my wedding day, right, and I still have memories I don't take it personally. Like, so for anyone who may have tried to console me 20 odd years ago, um, it's okay. But like lots of like, oh, you know, the photos will be better. This Like so much more empathy potentially than when I had my traumatic births. Mm. <laughs> like really. It's like, oh, you got more empathy for it raining. I mean, it's it's kind of one of those, it is a bit silly. And so we can't kind of minimize it too much. But I think that sort of just sums up what we value, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I think about this, like my comeback obviously was years later <laughs> when, when you <laughs> mull over this years later and you're still mad yeah. about it. It was like, I really wish that like I would bite back and be like, well, I matter too. Or, you know, just like something to yeah. be like, oh, you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I often find we're just so like baby focused, baby obsessed to the point where we kind of mothers become invisible and now they only exist for the benefit of the baby or others and that's really the culture that you know once you fall pregnant that's sort of what you're stepping into and yeah it's it's really tricky it's really particularly because you're getting it from people that love you and you love them (laughs) so Mm, you'll get the old stranger or random neighbor or whatever but yeah I think that's what makes it really tricky but yeah I like that analogy with the um the wedding And, and it's so true though like you made me kind of reflect on mine and like, you know, it rained on my wedding too. And like people were, people were like, Oh, I'm so sorry. All this is crap. And (laughs) I, you know, I, I got, I got some of that. I can't say that I didn't get any of that after my traumatic birth, but like, yeah, it's just funny. Like it it was a different feeling for sure. Mm -hmm. 
So it's not at all the same and it, it is very like white Western culture kind of frame of reference but sometimes I think it helps because you think, well, what else has happened in life that's major that you got a different reaction to? I mean, that's that's just one of them, I suppose, major life events, right? Yeah, yeah. So something I really loved that you talked about as well in your book was that how trauma is often misdiagnosed for depression and or anxiety and I, that actually made me think about a lot of different um, women that I've spoken to. Um, it made me think about the stats of postnatal depression in particular um, and kind of what's missing. And I actually think like having a GP diagnose you is just totally inadequate and not okay, which is what happens generally that women will go to a yeah. GP, they'll do the, the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale They'll get diagnosed mm-hmm. with depression. Here's some medication. Yeah. Maybe be given a referral, but it won't be to someone who specializes in their specific need. Um, and that's kind of our system in a nutshell, I would say. Yeah. Um, so what? Why, why does this happen? Like why are people misinterpreting um, trauma for depression? And what can professionals be doing to ensure that they're not overusing postnatal depression? So it's multi multifaceted. I guess the part of, like I'm a massive nerd, so you have to know that like part of the thing that I really loved in my training was differential diagnosis. Mm. Why is something this and not yep. this? If all signs point to this, are you sure it's not because of this, 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 and this instead? So like fundamentally, I'm still a clinician, and that's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy solving problems and going. This fits with this. This sort of fits with this, but that's not the right pathway to go down. It's all a decision train. So I think part of that is also maybe it's getting better now, but at least when I trained, like there was a bit of trauma and a bit of perinatal, but definitely not the two stuck together. I would say it probably wasn't even really something in the sphere of like put these two together and consider that in its own scope. So there is that. Um, People just aren't looking for it. Um, we still have this strong cultural narrative, I suppose, either that birth can't be traumatic <laughs> or that birth is inherently traumatic mm. and what did you expect and we can't put it, you know, you can't pathologise it. It's just fundamentally always been this way, right? So there's that kind of thinking. I think the other part that comes through with that, though, is that we, as we have become more aware and as funding has waxed and waned, some service Outcomes, say, for example, you know, they're funded and they're relying on outcome measures that look for one thing, right? So there are, even now, like there's funding for programs and it's getting better, but they are for postnatal depression and sometimes anxiety. They're not for trauma. So that thing that you mentioned, like, yes, it's great that we're screening for this with the Edinburgh, but the Edinburgh is not a, it's not a diagnostic tool Mm -hmm. and it's definitely not like a comprehensive screening tool you, you cannot find trauma on that scale mm-hmm. <laughs> you cannot look for trauma and go oh it's shown up there so we're just not we're not thinking about it we're not measuring for it so therefore it doesn't get picked up and it doesn't get treated and I think sometimes things in perinatal get all get lumped in together like oh well of course you're overwhelmed of course you're not sleeping of course you're feeling down and you're feeling teary the piece that often gets missed, though, is the preoccupation with an event is not a symptom of trauma. And not a symptom, it is a symptom of trauma. It's not a symptom of depression. 
and it's not particularly a symptom of anxiety. So the thing that makes it different um, is when there's preoccupation about an event and you can't get it out of your head and you're having reactions not just to your baby and parenthood and everything in general, which may still be happening, but there's also this really specific, I'm having a specific reaction to a specific event. That's not part of depression. Yeah. So I think it's some of that is it's, it's listening. It's mindful listening for what is the person actually saying instead of just going, oh, yeah, you're a mum, you're overwhelmed, you're teary, you're anxious, you're finding things hard. It's listening for that extra piece of and what are they mostly talking about? Because often you'll find uh, with birth trauma, it's it's it comes back to the event. It's mostly about the birth, the postpartum. It might even be we can get to that about the breastfeeding experience as well, and not so much that oh it's just difficult, but that's also another event tacked on to <laughs> what's an already existing traumatic event. I am interrupting this episode because I've got some awesome news for you. Dr. Erin Bow has so kindly offered a few of our listeners a copy of her incredible book, More Than a Healthy Baby, Finding Strength and Growth After Birth Trauma, and her new book, Social Media Detox for Mums. All you need to do to get your hands on a copy is to make sure you have subscribed to The Power of Birth and DM me the secret code IMATTER2. See what I did there? Hit me up at The Power of Birth on Instagram or Facebook, or you can email me, thepowerofbirth at outlook.com. Get in quick, don't miss out. Let's get back to it. While I would say as well, it is getting better, it's like we still have such a long way to go. For sure. Yeah, I think so. You mentioned breastfeeding trauma. This is something that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, Mm. Just the other day, I was reading something that was basically saying that breastfeeding trauma is not a thing. Mm. Yeah, that made me really sad when I read that because I just thought, Oh, how many, how many women will read this and yeah, it will, it will not go down well. I want to ask you what that was, but maybe, maybe tell me. Yeah, I'll tell you later. (laughs) I tried to just do a little bit of self, like stay in your body. body. (laughs) I'll have to, yeah, I'll show you the page and stuff it was on. I I purposely follow people I disagree with because I find it so helpful (laughs) Because, like, yeah. it forces me to, like, unpack oh, the why and within me and, like, what – and the differences and things. And it, and it forces me to think about things a different way a little bit as well. Um, yeah, so sometimes they have great points. They're not all great points. But sometimes there's some great points. And I'm like, oh, I, I see what you've done there and how you've got to that spot. You've just got it a bit wrong, you know. But, yeah, yeah I purposely follow people I don't agree with for that reason. <laughs> so you were talking about breastfeeding trauma. And mm. I – read your experiences in your book and how you sort of break this down. And I often find that this is something not talked about enough. We might talk about pregnancy trauma. We might talk about birth trauma, but breastfeeding trauma, not so much. So can you sort of describe what breastfeeding trauma is? And I guess some examples of maybe breastfeeding trauma, you could use your own if you'd like to, Mm. Um, but also then how is this different to birth trauma? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. One is like, I guess, you know, when when you've already had something traumatic happen, and let's use the example of something not being birth, you, you're actively not going to go back to reminders of that. You're actively not going to go back to, you know, similar situations, similar people. But after birth, there's this 
well, <laughs> it's a sort of choice, no choice, where you're like, well, you kind of have to, mm. right? Your baby has to be fed, even though this baby who, yes, you love and care for dearly at some point, <laughs> is the source of your trauma. So why would you want the source of your trauma? Like for me, that's just, I don't know, for me, it just seems like so the opposite. It's like, this is a no-brainer. Why would you want someone who, yes, you can separate, that's your logic brain, your tired, exhausted mammalian brain is going, no, this is the source of the trauma. Get it away from me, particularly if it's caused pain and distress. And that, you know, um, I remember even so distinct, like that anticipatory fear of like, oh, look at the clock. I'm going to have to feed soon. Mm. I'm going to have to feed soon. And there's all the pressure of like, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep going. Like for me, like the first time around, like I've just lost however many litres of blood it was. My body was not in a position to like even be making milk. I mean, there was all sorts of stuff around there that like, gee, nobody told me this was a thing that like, it's going to take time for your milk to come in and um, you are going to spend your days for a few days, at least having people round the clock manhandling you. I mean, I, I can't remember if I put this in the book or not. I think I did, but there was one lady and she was lovely, but she kept talking to me. Like she's here, like trying to express colostrum out of my boobs I'm very pale and like I had bruises all over me my husband's looking at me like god like what on earth like what on earth is this it's assault right it's it is assault at the end of the day but you sort of go along with it the form thing and she's saying to me yeah and so why do people take drugs and why does this happen and you're a psychologist and my friend said to me I remember this she's like why didn't you just tell people you're a florist like seriously why did you tell people you're a psychologist? Because they do. They're just like, here you are expressing this and they're just chatting to you about your job and you're like, this is weird. Like it, you go, it's an out-of-body experience. So for me at least, being in that position where you're like, oh, your baby's really hungry but also you've lost a lot of blood, your body's not doing well, I had a couple of blood transfusions. After normal surgery, right, you've injured your knee or something, nobody's going to say like, well, you've got to keep, you know, producing and producing and producing and do things that your body is otherwise telling you, no, I need a break, I can't do. So it sort of just keeps you in this perpetual state of like, when is the next bit coming? When is the next bit? When is the next bit? Um, there's no break. So for me, it's just like it makes sense to me that it's the perfect storm of continuing trauma. Um there's also that piece there for a lot of people that it represents a past history where their body has been spoken about rudely, treated badly. You can go on and on and on. You put all sorts of like descriptions on it, but people know if they've not felt safe in their own body through to other people. So you're just repeating that experience for people potentially. Um, and that's not something sometimes people think about or are aware of until they're kind of forced, I suppose, back in this coercive, like, let me come back to that, the language and the coercion, the, but you have to do this, you know, like your baby's hungry, you're going to have to feed them. Like, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of similarities for me in, yes, breast is best, and yes, you want to feed your baby, and yes, you want a healthy baby, but the language that we go around that is also very coercive mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah. I absolutely agree and you know I reflect on my own breastfeeding experiences and and what that looked like and you know very similar things like I felt like a cow and I was just being milked constantly and then you get the you know the cracked and bleeding nipples and the bruising and the engorgement mm. and the pain and like the apprehension before you latch baby and you know I remember trying to do that with people over and a cover on top and like it just 
the whole thing, you know, just reflecting back on those experiences, but then also just thinking about breastfeeding in general, like the the coercion and the, and the, the agenda, I guess, of breastfeeding, there is minimal support and there is no damage control. And so what does that lead to? It leads to, it could be trauma. It could be, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, yeah, like there are, there are varying responses, but all of them don't lead to, oh, I'm going to continue breastfeeding, you know, (laughs) like, so I just, we get this so wrong and we shouldn't be pushing agendas and we, we should be listening to women and we should be supporting and we should be, and you talk about like having a breastfeeding plan. And I actually think that's really a smart thing to do, um, for mothers, particularly first time mothers. If like, you've really never breastfed before I say that though, but my two breastfeeding journeys were completely different. So, um, and the second one being worse, which is often not what happens. So yeah, like it's just, every baby is also just so different as well. So it's like, we have to, we have to take these things into account. You know, I love that you talk about though. I love that it's in your book and I love that it's with birth trauma. Um, yeah, it just, that makes sense to me. So oh, I wanted to talk to you about post-traumatic growth. This, again, a topic that like is, oh, I wouldn't say it's controversial, but maybe in the birth space, it's controversial. Like it's almost like if you talk about post-traumatic growth, that if women aren't learning or growing or no, it's like you're sending a message, but you have to learn something from bad experiences. Like this is what I hear mm-hmm. right in the public. Um, that's totally not the definition of post-traumatic growth, but I thought I'd let you take this away and talk about what is post-traumatic growth um, and how do we kind of foster this if it's something that we're, that we're trying to work at. I guess the thing is like it's an option, right? It's, it's an option for something that can happen and that comes back to that hope piece of like, well, what is the point of all mm. of this, right? So for me... Part of getting through it, and it might be different for everybody, but part of getting through it for me was like, well, what am I going to make this mean, right? What am I going to make this experience mean? That I'm broken, that I'm defective, that I'm no good at giving birth, that no matter how much preparation I do, I'm doomed to fail. Like you could make it mean so many things and potentially I had, but I suppose for me it's like there must be more to this, right? I have to find something in this and I think it has to be in your own time. There's no silver linings here. Like there is no um, part of trauma therapy that I'm aware of where you sit down and go, well, what's the silver lining here? You know, Mm. like (laughs) it, it gets again a bit simplistic. This is a complex process that people arrive at or not in their own time but post-traumatic growth the way that we kind of think about it the way I understand it is resilience is like okay this bad thing happened and then with some support some strategies you kind of get back to where you were and life goes on and you wait till the next trauma right potentially because we're all here to suffer potentially (laughs) so I don't know I just sometimes think like what is the point of this I think the point like the very like navel gazing psychologist in me sometimes is like why do bad things happen okay guess so we can learn from them potentially but no no silver linings with post-traumatic growth there's this thing that happens where you like I don't know what's the analogy like you imagine being on a trampoline and you're just like catapult so you go past where you were before you're almost like not the same person anymore you have these insights about relationships about life about what's it all about and you just find that you flourish from that like I guess for me not in a million years did I think I would have a traumatic birth 
And then I wouldn't have thought I had another one. And then if you'd said to me, yeah, okay, you can have this gigantic meatloaf child who is then going to like completely spin your world around. Oh, but it'll be okay because then you're going to take a little career detour and keep talking about it to people. I mean, you couldn't have predicted that. Nobody could have predicted that. So it's the piece of like it worked out that way for me. It's it's an option, right, that you sort of turn this thing that was like the worst experience of your life into something that you're now like, oh, you know, you catch yourself. Sometimes I catch myself. I'm like, oh, right, I'm sitting here talking to someone about this, hopefully helping someone else with it. That has to be the point. There has to be some meaning in it and it's, whatever I make of it, it's whatever you make of it, it's whatever someone else makes of it. It doesn't have to be like, yes, be so grateful. Like, oh, you know, all things happen for a reason. Um, you know, time heals all wounds and any of that sort of stuff. Like none of that stuff is particularly helpful. Mm. I was reading a little while ago about post-traumatic growth and it said something like 50% of people who experience a traumatic event go on to develop post-traumatic growth. I think 50-50 is like a pretty good number. And I liked the analogy. I've heard it many times before, but you've got it in your book. And what is it? It's the Japanese art. What, what's it called? The Oh, kintsugi. Kintsugi. Yeah. So where the analogy is where you've got this broken, say, pottery. Usually it's pottery. Broken pottery. And so it's like trauma. You kind of feel a bit shattered in every facet of your life. And working to put those pieces back together, it's never really going to be the same. That pottery is never going to look the same. But what they do in this practice is they put it back together instead of glue and things like that. It's gold. So Mm. the end result, it's actually a really beautiful piece of pottery in the end because you've got these gold linings all throughout. Um, And, you know, it's it's usable again and it's, you know, all of those things. Mm. And I... It's one of my favorite analogies that I'd ever heard uh, about. I mean, it's used in multiple different ways, but particularly with post-traumatic growth in perinatal issues and perinatal trauma. I think it resonated with me because I saw myself in that and I was like, I'm just a whole new person and I like her a lot better than I did Mm. to the previous. In saying that though, I had someone, you know, I was kind of sharing this with someone the other day and they didn't know me super, super well. And they'd said to me, you know, they've had their own traumas and things. And they'd said to me, oh, knowing what you know now and like all of those things that you've just said, like, would you go back and change anything? And I think at first, because we were kind of talking in a positive light, I'd said, no, you know, I wouldn't change anything. Mm -hmm. But that conversation continued to annoy me for the rest of the week. (laughs) Because I was like, yeah, well, because I was like, did I just say that? Because that's what they wanted to hear. But then I I'd yeah. realized in myself, actually, no, I, I don't agree with my answer and I would change it if, mm. any, I, I, you know, totally caught me off guard. But I would change it because I don't think about going back and changing what happened. That doesn't cross my mind anymore. And so it's like I have accepted what has happened and I have tried to find ways that I can use it to be better. And I just think developmentally it's just what has also just happened as well. It's just funny that if people like pull it to pieces in different ways. <laughs> it's just like, you're actually missing the point. <laughs> no, yeah, I wouldn't. There, need, there doesn't need to be a, a kumbaya yes. with this. Yeah. Like the goal is not get to 
have absolutely no feelings about it, feel total acceptance about it. It's more just about integrating it, as you say, like into who you are and the experience that you've had and going, okay, I can't change it. This elements of like, not, would I choose again? Yeah, totally. I'd rather not have hemorrhage. Totally. <laughs> like, really? Like, I think about that and I'm like, should I have gone for that C-section? Well, I mean, I, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Don't know. But it is that part of like, okay, what are we going to make it mean? How are we going to get through it? It's like it will just be that, like, as you say, that little part of you, like the scars that we carry, some of them are physical and you can see them and you're going, yep, thank you, child, for that. <laughs> like, there's other ones we carry too and you find a way to make it mean something so you can kind of get on with your day which doesn't happen immediately. Yeah, that it mm. yeah, so true. It's definitely something that happens over I would say a long period of time. And I I don't feel like my piece of pottery is quite finished either, you know, like no. I yeah, I I see I still see the gaps and I still see things that I need to work on and, you know, whatever, but it's like yeah, over the period of my life, I imagine in my mind that it will be a complete set at the end of my life. Like this is long life work basically Mm, yeah you talk about in your book you've got different kind of coping strategies and remedies and things but then you also kind of talk about that deeper dive type work and what that looks like and some interventions and things people can use and one that I really wanted to talk to you about that I have had one session on myself is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing so EMDR a lot of people listening may have heard this before and this is a therapy used in treating trauma. It's, I would say it's becoming quite popular. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. So I know that this is something that you do. So can you explain what this is and how it works and kind of its effectiveness in this context of perinatal trauma? Mm, so this will be my kind of like nutshell version, how mm. I kind of have come to understand it myself. There's kind of two parts to it. So the, the focus in the titles on the eye movements, but with time and research, I think what we've figured is the eye movements is only like part of it. So I'll go to the first part first. In this kind of therapy, you have the assumption that when there are negative memories tied into kind of like this negative neural network, if you like, the idea behind the trauma, as I understand it, is that it's left you with a belief about yourself, a negative belief about yourself. And for birth, the things that we usually hear are the things I hear when we're kind of working on this, like, well, what was, what was, what's the core belief that this has left you with? It's usually going to be something like, I'm not safe. I'm, my body's broken. I'm ineffective. I didn't try hard enough. Like there will be some sort of, even though logically, logically, you know, it's not true. You've taken on this belief in part of your system and it's sort of governing your whole life. So EMDR assumes that as you can access the negative beliefs, there's a positive network in there too. So you can rely on all the past experiences throughout your life from like as far back as you can remember to yesterday and find examples of experiences that don't fit with that. So it might be, um, I don't know, let's say you have the belief that um, I'm out of control or I'm incapable. Like they're all like really, like sometimes when you flick through the list with people, it's like like the big book of horrible beliefs, right? <laughs> really confronting. But we've all got yeah. them, right? This is the thing. We go through life taking on these beliefs that are not true, but if it was as simple as saying, I know it's not true, then nobody would go to therapy and you and I would never do it, right? So simple as that. 
So we try and find other positive things that go, well, actually, I can do this. I can manage this. And it might be you start with small things like, oh, I did this hard thing when I was in primary school and then I did this hard thing at work. And eventually, like, this sometimes becomes when you get to that post-dramatic growth piece, it's like you you kind of, like my husband laughs at me when I, like, you know, stub my toe or something. He's like, yeah, that's a five-kilo baby. Like, you know, it's like there is evidence in there that you can do hard things. And so we build on that. And so we want to replace the negative belief with the positive belief that's a very fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing of like memory network systems so there's that and then while we're doing that we know that if you distract someone like bilaterally so on each side of your body with either two eyes or two you know you can do this with taps you can like move your feet you can play tetris you can sing happy birthday and try and remember the alphabet backwards if you distract working memory and you tax it it lessens the impact of what trauma feels like and it's like really cool mm. <laughs> we don't understand 100 percent how it works but you're pairing those two things together so it's finding a map usually at the beginning of here's a bunch of traumas that have happened you start with one which will be the first or the worst and then you need to be able to sit with discomfort for about a minute while you kind of um, like drive through the tunnel right so it's a very different therapy to any other therapy in that there's not a lot of talking once you're into processing it's literally you as a therapist waving your fingers back and forth sometimes people use lights sometimes they use buzzers with headphones but some sort of bilateral stimulation on each side of your brain and it just seems to take the heat off and we sort of understand how it works but sometimes we don't like fully understand how it works and there are different parts of it that have come out so originally they said it's the eye movements back and forth um which is sort of linked from what i understand to like rem sleep so sometimes when you're stressed about something or you're pondering something and you go to bed you sleep on it and then you have those rapid eye movements back and forth overnight sometimes you wake up and you feel differently about it something isn't as dramatic anymore you've had some new insights about it and so we know that that's part of it um, but it's not just the eye movements anymore and as things progress and we move more things online um, that was always something I was not even really sure about like before um, COVID like when I was talking to people about different options of my I've heard of people doing MDR I don't really know how it works online but now we've got the evidence that it's just as effective and can be quicker because you cut out all the extra noise of having to find parking and sit in the waiting room and do all of that so yeah, it's um, a good one because it's faster, but it is more intense. Yes. So my understanding when you're sort of working with trauma in a therapeutic setting, like this is supposed to be done incrementally. Like you're not opening all of the trauma and trying to repack it um, and, and process it. Yeah, it's sort of like tiny bit by tiny bit. And it, and it's whatever it like. There is a level of discomfort there, but it's what is kind of your tolerance, and you're kind of working within those frames. Um, mm. Yeah, and EMDR, I understand. Also, it doesn't work on everybody. I've definitely heard this before, but it is very popular because it is effective, um, or it can be effective, I should say. And yeah, it it's also a bit of a process in setting up as well like mm. you have quite a few sessions prior to set it up before you actually mm. do the thing <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and it's um, it's very structured. Like mm. it's a very highly structured therapy in terms of we do this, then we we move into phases, and it's like uh, it's like any other therapy. Like it's literally me sitting there with my manual and my like list of things because it's really important to not have therapist drift and just like start chatting halfway through. And it's for me, someone who's trained in talking, like it's actually quite hard when people sort of chat in between and you want to like go there and you have to be like no 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 and just notice that (laughs) and go back into it so yeah it is intense it's not for the faint-hearted um intensive setup for me it's always like those questions around well have you actually got an hour to do this an hour and a half more ideally I want you to drink a lot of water I want you to be able to go for a walk you ideally don't want to do this in your lunch break Mm. or just go back to screaming children you can't have other people around you like there's just there's a lot a lot a lot of setup you're right because it's a lot of intensity um but the alternative I suppose is what's more um like going over the story again and again and again and getting desensitization that way which is also effective Mm. um one of the reasons i suppose emdr doesn't work is because sometimes if you stay outside of your window of tolerance a couple of things happen one is that it's too intense and then people either drop out or they go into form response and they dissociate so um dissociation is like that's a whole other thing to talk about but it is a very common part of trauma and not a lot of people actually scream for it properly um it's not always the way that it seems to be, but I, I think from what the reading I've done, it seems to be, and even just talking to people who've said to me, oh, I've had that before and it didn't work, and then you sort of unpack it a bit and it's like, oh, you blocked it the whole time. Mm. You went into people-pleasing. You dissociated. You were not in your window of tolerance, and rather than saying to someone, I, like, this is too hard, I can't do it, can you stop, whatever, um, they've just sort of gone into people-pleasing, which we all do sometimes, mm. <laughs> like, especially with health professionals, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just interesting that that is now um, an option, an accessible option, I would say, and something, I guess, to consider if, you know, we have people listening and they're not really sure. And I I often say, like, (laughs) I get frustrated with, like, the treatment of perinatal issues because it is a very, like, we need to be seeing somebody who specializes or has like special training in this particular space because it is so unique and it is so different. Mm. And, you know, like just postnatal depression looks different from regular depression, you know, things like that. So it's like, Mm. we can't be treating this the way we would treat other mental illness and being able to consider all of your options because I find medication and cognitive behavioral therapy is not an adequate treatment plan for um, perinatal issues, particularly perinatal trauma. I would say Mm. yeah and that's generally the (laughs) go-to so yeah Mm. there are other options out there and if you're open to them try them because you Mm. just never know no and they do work when when the setup is right Mm. and the therapeutic relationship is good which is possibly even more important than what kind of therapy you choose this has to be someone that you trust this has to be someone that you feel safe with who you don't feel is actually kind of sort of judging you out the corner of their eye like if there's even a sniff of that, it doesn't work. Mm. And sometimes there is a sniff of it and you, you you can call it out and say, are you sure? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 
yeah, whatever, fine. So it's a dance. Yeah. Right? It's a dance to be able to trust someone enough to say, actually, you, you're pushing me just the right amount. No, now you're pushing me too far. Back off. Yeah. Right. So on that note then, what advice do you have for some people who might be hesitant about seeking therapy or supports after experiencing things like birth trauma? Mm, I think validate it first because I guess the big piece with birth trauma is it's often interpersonal, Mm. right? There's been an element of you were not listened to, not made to feel safe, you were disrespected. Like it's just so, so common at the very, very, very subtle levels of racism, misgendering your partner like there's just so 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 many nuanced layers of this so then for us to sit here and go why don't you go and talk to somebody about that like you have to sort of be able to acknowledge and I would fully acknowledge that like we we're part of that broader system like as much as we want to say no I'm not like that I'm not like those people it's still it's healthcare in general right and can you go back into the system that has betrayed you and trust again that's a massive 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 ask so you've got options one is that you just rip the band-aid off and have a go and know that it will be uncomfortable but it will get better and sometimes it takes a few goes right that is a a normal part of my week is receiving emails and queries from people who never in a million years get back to me again or maybe they come back a few months later or they have one session and then like goes to me like trauma has a really high dropout Mm. rate that has to be normalized (laughs) so some of that's like "Mm, I want to take it personally of like not every single person who makes that contact with you continues on that is just part of trauma work Uh, so there's that but there's you know there's options now you can go and like you know as my clients like to say I google stalked you first I'm like well good right (laughs) you want to put stuff out there so that people can find you and go okay you kind of seem all right (laughs) so you know go and do the research of videos read books you know like I have a whole resources page of free things people can look at um there's also you know steps down from that which might be if you're not ready for therapy sometimes I'll say to someone well go and do this birth trauma course that I put together it's not a replacement for therapy but you're going to see how I work learn a couple of strategies dip your toe in and see what you think and sometimes that works wonders. It also helps with the whole, we've only got 10 sessions. Mm. Um, if there's something I can teach you, just a camera, and you can watch that at three in the morning, like who's there for you at three in the morning, like that helps. So that I think we just have to expand the definition of what is therapeutic. And for me, my bugbear, I suppose, is this tradition that says we have knowledge, but you can only get that knowledge if you meet someone in an office and they hand it to yeah. you right like even I think when I was training maybe I was in honors I can't remember but like even like that DSM book that we use that's like you know the bible of all the things that was kept in a special area because we didn't want people who were not trained to be psychologists to look at it <laughs> like it's just it's so why are we hoarding knowledge what are people going to do with yeah. it yes some people might abuse it I suppose but for the majority of people people just want some relief they just want to feel better they yeah. want to feel something other than what they're feeling yeah and they want it to be accessible and affordable and yeah. resourceful <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely I agree so one thing that I often find comes up a lot um in I guess birth trauma and breastfeeding trauma and perinatal trauma I guess is you know lots of people share their stories it's a really important part of processing and healing and so you know we have platforms now where just anyone and and everyone can stumble across them and so then birth trauma is then 
something that's kind of right in your face or it's scary mm-hmm. or it's whisked under the rug and we don't go there because it's not positive enough um, and mm-hmm. never to be spoken of and, you know, all of those things. How do we not scare – how do we have these conversations and not scare, like, new mums or women who, you know, have just become pregnant and things and we're talking about the realities of birth in our current culture? Like, how do we find balance in raising awareness but not instilling fear? I see, I ponder this. Me too. And I'm not sure I have, like, there's no perfect packaged answer for Mm. this. I think if I think about it, it's similar to, like, any other kind of transitional phase where people surely, before you had a baby, warned you it was going to be difficult. They warned you, like, you're not going to get any sleep and this is going to be hard. And so I think back to that version of me who is still in there somewhere but she's mostly long gone now, whinging that she didn't get nine hours of sleep and calling into work sick because, you know, I felt a little bit tired. (laughs) Um, I can have compassion for her but really, like some days I just want to slap her and go, what, you've got no idea. Would I have been receptive to that? Probably not because we do that thing as new parents who we want to figure things out for ourselves We want to be informed, yes, but we want to arrive at our own conclusions. And when people tell us that things are hard, we sometimes do that thing of like, well, yeah, I hear you. I hear that it was hard for you, but it will be different Mm. for me, right? Because that's I'm sure that there's some evolutionary drive there. That's that's how people have children. That's how we get to have children because we tell ourselves the lie that all parents need to tell themselves, which is like, I know it was hard for you, but it will be different for me. And so I, I'm not sure even then, like if you think about that, like just becoming a parent, sleep, any of those sorts of things, you know, I'm, I think about all the <laughs> well-intended advice I used to give people before I became a parent myself. And now I just look back and go, oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could line them all up and go, I'm sorry. I didn't know that it's not actually as simple as, well, you just put them back to bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just put them back to bed. Jeepay <laughs> said that to me not that long ago and I'm just like, I'm, yeah, I'm just going to leave that yeah. one. Because if it was as simple as that, like, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know that there is the perfect balance. You're right. It's, you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what you're going to walk into. Like, you know, we may have similarities in our experiences, even in birth trauma and perinatal trauma, but they are still different. And the way mm. that we perceive them are different, you know, and then mm. how we process them and, and progress is different. So, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I am looking for an answer. <laughs> if I come up with one, I'll let you know. But no, I mean, what, just just don't? Just don't? I mean, that that's become an option for me for, like, the last two and a half years with Instagram. Like, I used to do that. I was like, yep, really into it. And then it's just like my nervous system cannot be in this level of, like, you know, 45 messages about traumatic births a day. Just cannot. So other people might be able to, and that's okay. If we go back to, like, matrescence or something like that, in this season of my life with my kids, I cannot give that extra energy to people. So I hopped out. Yeah. Well, you know, on that note, like, so your latest book is a social media detox for mums. And this is something that you've been practicing for 18 months. Is that right? Two and a half years. Oh, it's been two and a half years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Two and a half years. So what was that? 2021? I think so. Okay. So what are, what does life look like now? What are your hopes personally, professionally in this space? And how does all, how has that all played out with? no social media 
Yeah, it's tricky because, again, there's no, like, perfect answer there. Like, it's it's not, you know, what was right for me isn't necessarily right for other people. Also, like, anyone has a right to change their mind. I may change my mind one day. At this stage, I haven't. That's my stubborn streak coming through of going, like, life is just too good without it. Um, but, you know, in terms of the practical stuff, it's like, yeah, there is that, like, well, could I be doing more? Could my career have gone a bit you know that thing of more like we always think oh could I have more could I have more more success more this more this more this more this it's like no I just actually want a simple life (laughs) but in terms of that global change yeah there's lots of global change there that I would like to see happen Mm. in my lifetime um particularly to do with like systemic racism I think those rates need to be completely and utterly like ripped apart because they're horrific yeah. like not just even birth trauma statistics but like you're talking about black women in birth dying that's just pure systemic racism I could go on and on and on about mm. that um you know that's it's a real thing yeah we have a lot of American statistics do you know of our Australian uh they're mostly been hidden oh or just conveniently not able to find because we don't have the same our healthcare systems uh, like even just to do with research yeah. and insurance and all that completely different yeah. chalk and cheese um i've been on podcasts before where people have asked me that and i'm like i actually can't answer that because that information is not available yeah that's um, what i found or we kind of do the like we do a bit of like um cherry picking kind of stuff here like i think that's part of the bigger piece as well mm. the when people have said, well, uh, this is the other thing. It's like, oh, well, at least you've got a healthy baby. Like, but things are better than they were in the dark yes. ages. That's the thing I used to hear a lot too. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're taking these statistics and they're based on this and they're based on that. Like, well, we actually don't really know what they're based on. Um, and there's often a piece through that that is also, I guess, if you want to say it that way, like very victim blaming as well. It's like, oh, well, you know, these mothers didn't do this and didn't do this and didn't do the next thing, not as a community, we failed them in this way, we failed them in this way, and we failed them in this way. So, yeah, stats, um, I mean, there's stuff happening now with that where I think um, there's more data being collected and more voices being heard, but we don't have the same, like you can't just bring up a hospital's outcome statistics quite as easily as you can in the US. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that goes Mm. along well with, um, how Australia has dealt with its past. A lot of it is mm. just hidden. Yeah. It seems to be a recurring theme. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, well, this has been so great, Erin. Thank you so much for your time and, you know, sharing parts of your story and weaving that with your knowledge and your wisdom. And, yeah, I loved your book. I think it's great. I think every mum should have it, particularly if they've had birth trauma there's so much helpful information there and you break it down in such an easy and simple way for people to understand. Um, and yeah, I just appreciate you coming on so much. So thank you. Oh, so nice to hear. Thank you. So I mean, it's, you know, it's part of the hope piece. It was all for, it was all for something, even if it was just to help like one other person, right? Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health, please don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at The Power of Birth on Instagram and Facebook or on our website, thepowerofbirth.net. If you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode. Thank you.